0: chapter 10, verses 24 through 33. The commitment of discipleship is what I've entitled the message this morning. Matthew ten twenty-four through 33. Lord, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts now as we study together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The theme of Matthew is Christ the King. We are in chapters 8 through 10, the authority of the King. Really, Matthew 10 could, I think, properly be called the chapter on power and persecution. They go together, power and persecution. I think about what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where he says that I may know him, that's Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. But he didn't put a period there. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I think the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, they go together. Now, as we study Matthew, we find that Christ endowed the apostles with special miracle power as they went forth proclaiming the kingdom is at hand. As his special representatives, the apostles did kingdom sign miracles in Christ's name, showing indeed that Jesus was the Christ. And the kingdom was indeed being presented on the condition of repentance. At the same time, Christ also prepared them for hostile rejection that they would face, saying, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Say, well, I really kind of like the first part of the message, Jesus. You know, this, uh, you you know, you're going to do kingdom miracles and and have, you know, that kingdom power kind of working through us. I really enjoy. But this part here about being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves is troublesome. Uh, You know, if they were honest, that probably could have been stated, right? Uh, He warned them of religious opposition, governmental opposition and even family opposition. And Christ showed that this not only had application for the apostles, but ever in a widening circle of emphasis, he applied it to God's people generally, as seen in the fact that this kind of hostility would be universal, and would continue until the time of the second coming. And as we continue on in our study, Christ now continues with this theme of persecution. And really, it's, a, it's amazing. The kingdom power emphasis working through the apostles is really eclipsed by the emphasis on you will be persecuted. You will suffer. Tremendous emphasis being put forth here that you rarely hear in evangelical circles today. It's like we've completely avoided this part of the message. Yeah, we like the power. We're here. We're going to see power. What about suffering? I mean, that's completely downplayed in today's theological world out here. And Christ not only says we're going to face persecution, but he specifically addresses how his people should respond to it as seen in Matthew ten twenty four through 33. So we pick it up, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Christ is laying down general principles here. A disciple means a learning follower. It's kind of that combination of a learner and a follower. A learning follower. And so a disciple, by definition, is not above his teacher. The first prerequisite for a disciple is really to have a teachable heart. A disciple is a follower, and that by nature means a true disciple is not above the teacher. A disciple assumes the position of a learning follower. Nor is the servant above his master. Uh, more literally, this reads, nor a slave above his lord. The word lord, Greek kurios, uh, means master. In both illustrations, the disciple and the slave are in the subordinate position. And then Christ makes this application. Here's where he's going with this. Verse 25. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher. And a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? The goal of the disciple is to become like his teacher. And likewise, the slave may seek to emulate his master. But the disciple does not expect to rise above his teacher... And the slave does not expect to rise above his master. And the point being made in context is that we as Christ's disciples slash slaves. After all, he did buy us. He bought us with his precious blood. We as Christ's disciples slash slaves are never going to rise above him. We're not above Christ. And Christ therefore says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more? will they call those of his household? Christ is the master of the house, that is the household of faith. And if they have called him Beelzebub, how much more should we expect that likewise they're going to mistreat us? We are not above it, my friends. We're not above what they did to Jesus Christ. Christ is telling us that if they mistreated him like this, we too, as his disciples' slaves, should likewise expect it to be similarly mistreated. We're not above our Lord. We're not above how they treated him. And yet, I think sometimes we expect, and sometimes people get the idea, you just become a Christian and it's health, wealth, and prosperity now until the kingdom, and then it's even better. Well, it is good in the sense of our relationship with God, but in terms of the way of the cross, it's the way of persecution. You know, if we really preach this message hard, we might not have as many followers, but we might have more genuine ones. We saw back in chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees said that Christ cast out demons by the ruler of demons, which would be Satan. In 1224, the Pharisees again said that Christ cast out demons, quote, by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So it's very clear who they uh, were calling Beelzebub. It's really Satan. Now here in 1025, Christ says that they have called him Beelzebub. Again, this title Beelzebub, or in the older manuscripts, uh, Beelzebul, uh, is slightly altered in form from the Old Testament zebub which was a deity of the Philistines, which literally means Lord of the flies. This slightly altered form seems to have been done purposely and contemptuously because Beelzebub literally means Lord of dung. Whether Lord of the flies or Lord of dung, it is clear that the Jews use this as a pejorative term in reference to Satan. It was a title for Satan. That's how they used it. So in effect, these teachers, these learned teachers of Israel, were really calling Jesus Satan. That's how he has power over demons. He is Satan, the ruler of demons. He's ruling them. That's how he can command them. It is hard to imagine a more offensive thing to do than to call the holy Messiah the God of dung. What Christ is saying is that we should not think that we're above it. I've been insulted a few times, but they're not calling me the Lord of dung yet. I mean, it hasn't has that happened to you? Very vile. Very blasphemous. What Christ is saying is that we should not think that we're above it. We should expect that those hostile to Christ will also label us in extremely offensive ways. This should not come as a surprise to us. After all, they call Jesus Beelzebub, meaning Lord of the Flies, or Lord of Dung as an insulting term for Satan. So how should we respond? What well, Jesus says, verse 26, Therefore do not fear them. You know, it gets, when people start calling you these kind of names, it gets a little scary, right? Right? people like that are crazy they're scary crazy and they are i mean the world is full of crazy people if you ask me at this point that's just my opinion but uh, of course they need the lord and we pray for these people apart from the grace of god i'm crazy too right yeah that's true but he says do not fear them and here's why for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known Now repeatedly, three times in this context, verse 26, 28, and 31, Jesus says, do not fear. He's telling us persecution is coming, but do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. How should we respond? Not with fear. Now when we face this level of intense hostility, being called the devil, which is what the world does, they call evil good and and good evil, uh, Isaiah 5.20. But when we face this level of intense hostility, the most natural reaction is to be afraid. But Christ tells us to not fear and tells us the basis for conquering fear. And what Christ is telling us is that one day all will be exposed. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all going to come out. On that day, when it all comes out, God's people will be completely vindicated before all. You really don't have to worry about vindicating yourself. God will do that. He's he's, he's good at vindicating people. How God's people were were mistreated will be seen for what it was. And all will be made to recognize the truth and will be judged accordingly. It says in Romans chapter 2 verse 16, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God's going to unveil it all the ultimate reality on everyone's going to come out he's going to judge the secrets of men the secrets are no longer going to be secret it's going to be open so we don't have to let fear paralyze us because god knows all and will set the record straight one day that's a comforting reality if you're serving god and it's really an emboldening reality that should cause us to take courage God has the final say on everything and on everyone. Take courage. In the end, it doesn't really matter what people say, no matter how hurtful they may say it. What matters is what God says. His alone is the final voice of authority, and He will set it all straight in due time. Ed Glasscock says, Judgment was coming, and those faithful to Christ would be recognized. The truth would be known. And they would be justified before all those who had slandered and persecuted them. That's the spirit of this. You know, Christ said to the church at Philadelphia in the book of Revelation, verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. <laughs> this, is a, this is a meeting of Satan's people uh, who say they are Jews. They claim they're the covenant people of God and are not, but lie. And the devil's people tend to lie. Indeed, he says, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Oh, you see what God's going to do here? He says, I'm going to take those liars who belong to Satan and they're going to come and they're going to be bowing down. I and mean, Worship, of course, is for God alone. But here he's bringing in uh, them before uh, the feet of these believers to, to make them know, hey, these are the ones I love. Christ further elaborates on the kind of boldness he is calling his people to, as seen in verse 27. And it really is boldness to testify. Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. That'll get you in trouble, by the way. That's the context here. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Jesus is saying, what I told you in private, now I want you to speak openly. What they heard in private was now to be preached from the, the flat housetops. Make it known. The idea is the fear is not to paralyze them from openly proclaiming Christ and what he had personally taught them. Not only his application for the apostles, but uh, extends down to us as his followers. Their message was from Christ and essentially about Christ. And he wants that message gotten out. Now, where fear comes in, and I'm sure you can relate to this, right? We all can. Where fear comes in often relates to speaking. If I just keep quiet, I'll stay out of trouble. Which may be true. But what about verse 27? I mean, he made it pretty clear that he wants the message gotten out. We are afraid to speak up, concerned about how people will respond or react. This is nothing new, and the apostles themselves knew of this struggle. The apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter six, nineteen and 20, said, and for me, he's asking prayer, and for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You know, whenever I read this, I think that if Paul needed prayer for boldness, I'm sure I do. And I know from my own experience I do. There's times it's like, how could I be so yellow? I had a, a golden opportunity, and I just kind of just kind of sputtered. <laughs> the pressure is to not be bold, to not speak as we ought to speak, as we've been commissioned to do. This is why we're here. We are sheep in the midst of wolves, and yet we're to be bold. We're to be wise, but we're to be bold. As we study the whole context here, there is a balance that requires wisdom and discernment for when to speak and when not to speak. Notice, all in the same chapter, these emphases. Don't cast your pearls before swine. There's a time when you don't cast them, right? Yep, that's true. Verse 16, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. So, so use your head. Verse 23, when they persecute you, flee Uh, in this, uh, when they persecute you in this city, flee. The, The sense is you are being a testimony and therefore that's why they're persecuting you. And it's time to get out of here. It's not like you were being persecuted for being silent. And now verse 27, preach on the housetops. Get the message out there. Yeah, use your head. There's a time to run. Time to flee, but get the message out there. Overall, the expectation is that Christ's people will stand for and speak the truth. And this will get them in trouble with the world. Expect it. It got Jesus in trouble. And by the way, we are not above him. Hugh Latimer was one of the Reformation preachers. And one day he found himself called to preach in the presence of King Henry VIII. That's, uh, you know, that might be considered an honor or that might be like, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? Well, he said to himself on that occasion, Latimer, Latimer, remember the king is here. Be careful what you say. And then he reflected a moment and he said to himself again, Latimer, Latimer, remember that the king of kings is here. Be careful what you do not say. And for this kind of faithful preaching, Latimer was later burned at the stake in 1555 under the Catholic Queen Mary. Well, for faithful preaching, we may well be killed. Jesus was, and we're not above it. And so Jesus says, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body. And and they do. Do. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Here we have the second do not fear in our study. In the face of persecution, Christ calls on us to maintain an eternal perspective. People may indeed kill the body. Many of God's, more people are being killed, uh, you know, every year now than ever in the history of the church age, actually. <laughs> as far as the numbers, raw numbers. People may indeed kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. For the believer, death is a release from this world of strife to the experience of glory. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Instead of fearing those who can merely kill the body, Christ says that we should rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now it has often been said that we should fear God and fear nothing else. Pretty good motto to live by. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear God means to reverence Him. It means to hold Him in awe. Such a reverence for God is often closely linked with saving faith. We see in Psalm chapter 2, 11 and 12, Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, embrace Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. It's a, it's a trust that is born out of, a, of an awe for who, who he is. Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Romans three eighteen says, The people in their wickedness come to a place where they have no fear of God. And that is indeed a very scary place to be. Psalm fifty-five, nineteen: 19. God will hear and afflict them. Even he who abides from of old. Selah. Why? What, what's the problem? Because they do not change. There's no repentance. They do not change. Therefore, they do not fear God. They're on a course where, hey, we don't care what God says. No thought for God. No fear of God. God's going to afflict them. Proverbs 1, 30, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. It was a definite choice made here. But they did not choose the fear of the Lord, human responsibility. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. And the reason Jesus gives as to why we should fear God is because he is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. After the body is dead, there is nothing more than people can do. Uh, they might foolishly try. John Wycliffe was so hated by the Roman Catholic hierarchy that 43 years after his death, they dug up his body, burned his remains, and threw the ashes into the river. But you know what? It never affected John. It never affected his soul, which was safely tucked away in God's hands for all eternity. The soul of a person refers to the immaterial part of a person that refers to conscious life. People can only kill the body. But in effect, God can kill both the soul and the body in hell. To destroy means to bring to ruin. You see, hell is not a place of annihilation, but a place of eternal ruination. It's a place of everlasting destruction, where uh, things eternally degenerate. They never get any better. Everything's always breaking down and getting worse, somehow, for all eternity. When a person dies, their soul leaves their body. That's what happens. This is the definition of death. It means separation. James 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead. There you go. There, there's the definition of death. But the soul lives on. The soul of the believer goes to be with Jesus, awaiting the resurrection, when the soul will be reunited with the body in glorified form. The soul of the unbeliever at the moment of death goes to a holding place of torment called Hades. But there's also going to be a resurrection of the lost when their soul will also be reunited with their body only to appear before the great white throne, judgment of God. And from there, whoever is not found written in the book of life, every day, everybody has their day in court. Not a good day for all these lost people. Anyone found not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. This is the final destiny of all the lost. We read about it in Revelation twenty fifteen, a very sobering verse. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I hope your name's in the book of life today. You know, you have the Lamb's book of life, as it's called. Jesus died for you, but you have to receive him as your Savior. You have to receive him as your Lord and Savior. And when you do, your name is written down in that book of life. For all eternity, your name is written down in that Lamb's book of life. That's the most important book there is. I mean, in addition to the Bible. This is what Christ is talking about here. God has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. In effect, both soul and body will be eternally killed in hell. Now, sometimes people wrongly say that everyone has eternal life. You heard people say that? They're just going to live in different places. But that is not biblical terminology. You see, believers have eternal life, and eternal life is God's life, and we share in His life. That's what we mean by having eternal life, which is not only eternal in duration, that is true, but it's the quality of life. We share in God's life. That's what eternal life is. But unbelievers will experience, are you ready for this? Eternal death. Eternal death. Not eternal life. They will exist forever. But in the realm of a conscious, if you will, living death, as it were. They will experience eternal destruction forever separated from the presence of the Lord. The word translated here is hell in Matthew 10, 28 is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna is the transliteration of the Hebrew Gehennaum, meaning the valley of Hinoam. It was a deep valley just south of Jerusalem, where in the Old Testament, child sacrifices took place. It became a huge dump, where refuse burned all the time, and the corpses of criminals were disposed of there. As such, it became a prophetic symbol of the place of eternal judgment. Very possibly, when Christ spoke of hell, he pointed out towards Gehenna the dump. said, that's what it's going to be like. Eternal fire. Eternal deterioration. Hell is Gehenna, which is spoken of as a place of eternal and unquenchable fire, a lake of fire and brimstone, an eternal fire, a furnace of fire, a place of outer darkness, and a place of eternal punishment. In summary, hell is a dark place of everlasting fire, indicating eternal suffering. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other New Testament writer, simply because he didn't want anyone to go there. The warning is strong. I don't have time to enlarge upon this too much, but uh, note here in the Old Testament, uh, we have uh, two compartments of departed spirits. People die. Where's their spirit goes? Well, in the Old Testament, you had uh, the the Hebrew word is Sheol. The Greek word is Hades. You have the saved compartment, the, the paradise section of Hades. And you have the torment section of Hades. And we see in Luke 16, there was a great gap that separated the two. Couldn't come from here to there. Couldn't come from here to here. As Jesus said. I believe in his resurrection at that time, uh, he emptied out this compartment, took those Old Testament saints and and, uh, took them back to heaven. And now, when we die in Christ, we go to heaven. Our soul goes to heaven. People, when they die today, still go to this torment section of Hades. It's a temporary holding place, it's not the final lake of fire, it's like the local prison, uh, not the ultimate place of confinement. Not the penitentiary, if you will. So uh, that's where they die. And they're, they're going to be there until the great white throne judgment. And then they'll have their day in court. And if their name's not found written in the book of life, and it won't be, or they wouldn't be here, then they're going to be cast into the lake of fire, the, the eternal home of the unsaved. That's Gehenna. That's Gehenna. That's what Christ is warning about right here. The one thing to note in relation to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew ten twenty eight is that there is a resurrection of the just as well as the unjust. And in the end, God is going to destroy both the body and the soul of the lost in hell, in Gehenna. The point is hell is an eternal place of torment for the whole person, for the whole person. Both soul and body will suffer there for all eternity. God designed us to live in a body and everyone is going to get their body back in resurrection form. The saved will have glorified bodies suited for glory for all eternity. The lost will have resurrected bodies suited for torment for all eternity. The saved will experience eternal life. The lost will experience eternal death. All will exist forever in one capacity or another. And we see this many places. Uh, here in Daniel 2, 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall await, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But, but they're all coming out of the dust of the earth. They're, they're all going to see a resurrection. Uh, Paul in Acts 24, 15, I, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just, that's the saved, and the unjust. Now, as we think about uh, the resurrection, the theme of resurrection, there, there is the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. There are stages here in the resurrection of the just. Christ is the first fruits. He's the first one to ever get a resurrected, glorified body. The first one. But the first fruits means there's more to come, right? And there is. Uh, the next stage here, as far as first resurrection or the resurrection of the just, is in relationship to the rapture. We're living in the church age. Uh, We don't know when the rapture is going to take place. I mean, I'm really looking forward to this move over to the new facility, but I won't be disappointed if the rapture happens before we get there. Will you? No, I don't think you will be. Uh, Those in Christ who have died are going to receive their glorified bodies at his coming. And then he comes back to the earth. The Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected at that point. That's the resurrection of the just, what is also called first resurrection. Then there's a gap. We find in the book of Revelation that the resurrection of the unjust does not take place until after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Then they will be resurrected only to stand before the great white throne judgment and be judged by God. So this is an overview. Jesus says to his people not to fear because in the end all will be revealed. There will be a vindication of his people. And not to fear because people can only kill the body, in contrast to God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The great issue is to be right with God. That is really what matters in the end. Someone has well said the fear of God is the fear that cancels fear. I love this about John Knox. When the Scottish reformer John Knox was lowered to his grave, it was declared, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. Yeah, that's what what Jesus Christ is talking about here. Martin Luther, in his famous song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, wrote, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And again, this harmonizes with the emphasis that Jesus is making right here in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus continued, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? You see, a sparrow was of relatively very little worth, two of them being sold for a simple copper coin. Yet Jesus said that not even one of them falls to the ground apart from God's sovereign will. God sovereignly superintends even the life of every sparrow. The emphasis here is on God's absolute sovereignty, even over little things, little details that seem rather insignificant and unimportant. Furthermore, Jesus says, verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Every little detail about us matters to God. Now, I don't have a lot of hairs on my head. On top, on top. But I challenge you to try to count the ones on the side. I bet you can't even do that. Just think about how God cares about us. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. You know, mothers care for their children, but there is not a single mother here who has ever counted the hairs on their child's head. Not that kind of detail. We care for them, but not that kind of detail. God numbers every single hair on our heads. He's concerned about every little detail about us. And if God so superintends even these smallest of details, how much more the bigger issues in life, as we call them. God cares about everything in your life. Therefore, Jesus says, do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. You have value to God. This is the third do not fear emphasis. Do not fear. All will come out in the end. You will be vindicated. Do not fear. People can only kill the body. After that, they're done. You say, well, what else are you going to do? Well, we're going to burn him and dump him in the river. (laughs) Okay. People can only kill the body. God controls eternal destiny, both soul and body. The real issue is that. That. And then, do not fear. God sovereignly cares about every detail of your life. You are of great value to God. You matter. You matter to God as His child. Your life matters. Your death matters. Every detail about you matters to God. Sometimes it might seem like nobody else cares, but I'm telling you, God cares. You have great value. Psalm one sixteen fifteen. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. He cares. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him. Why? Well, he cares. He cares for you. Verse 32, the conclusion of the matter. The whole context relates to persecution. Verse 32, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus caps off his exhortation to not fear with this, therefore, promise. To confess literally means to agree with or to affirm. Now, when we confess Christ, as he says here, if you confess me before men, to confess is more than merely intellectual recognition. Even the demons believe intellectually, as seen in James 2.19. Obviously, they're not saved. To confess means to openly identify with what is being affirmed. In this case, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess Christ before men is to take your stand with him. In spite of the hatred and hostility you will experience. Note the emphasis here. In both verse, verse 32 and 33, note the emphasis on before men. Before men. And the context is before men who are hostile. We do not confess Christ simply by acknowledging that he is Lord and Savior, but by acknowledging and receiving him personally in truth as our Lord and Savior that then demonstrates itself before men. Note that phrase before men. This is why Paul in Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, we not only confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but also we believe in our heart. It must be real in the heart. Otherwise, it's just an empty profession. And if it's real in the heart, the expectation is that we'll be on display before men. You know so much for this secret Christianity. Well, I, I think he was a Christian. We never heard him talk about Jesus, but I'm pretty sure he was a Christian. I'm sure. He, I'm sure he went to heaven. Never, never openly testified of Christ. But really, Jesus here, the promise relates to before men. Earlier in the sermon, Jesus made this point. Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three. Not everyone who says they say it. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say, they're talkers, many will say to me, they're going to say it to Jesus in that day. Lord, Lord, look at my record, all I did. Have we not prophesied in your name? We are preachers. Cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. We have a signs and wonders ministry in your name. It was we were constantly talking about you. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We're not saved by mere empty confession. There's such a thing as a bogus profession. It must be real in the heart, and if it's real in the heart, it will show in the life. When the Bible says if we confess Christ, we are saved, it assumes a confession that is real from the heart, which is then seen in the life in being willing to confess Him before men. And we need to understand that. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians twelve three. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord, and, and I insert it here, and mean it, except by the Holy Spirit. We see in Matthew 7, lots of people can say it, but it's got to be real. 1 John four fifteen. whoever confesses, again, this assumes the nature of a true confession. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. But it's got to be real. He's got to be God to you. The literal language here in verse 32, by the way, is very intimate. Confesses me is very, and more literally in the Greek, confesses in me. With a construction emphasizing a confession that is born out of union with Christ. This implies a life confession. That is a pattern of life based on union with Christ. Those so genuinely identified with and thus confessing Christ before hostile men will also be confessed by Christ before his Father in heaven. The believer testifies out of union with Christ, and Christ will affirm union with this person before the Father. The true believer openly confesses Christ, and therefore Christ will openly confess union with the believer before God. The one goes with the other. The word therefore links what is being said. And note that word therefore. It links what is being said about confession to what has just been said in the preceding context. In other words, a true confession openly identifies with the truth of Christ. And therefore can expect to suffer persecution for it. And a true confession confesses Christ in spite of the persecution, in the context of persecution. And the promise of assurance, and that's really what we have here in verse 32, the promise of assurance is that those who so confess Christ will have Christ confess them before the Father on Judgment Day. Again, it will all come out. Ultimate reality will be revealed right there in the very presence of God the Father as to where we stand. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, to the church at Smyrna, Christ says, Do not fear, begins, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that so you may be tested, and you have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Don't fear. Have an eternal perspective. Revelation 12, 11, we find in the middle of the tribulation period, it says... And they overcame him, the Antichrist, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. This is a package. This is indicative of a true confession before men. A a true saving faith perseveres, not perfectly, but certainly. But on the flip side, on the flip side, there's also this warning, verse 33. But, contrast word, but whoever denies me before men Him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. As confession in context is a lifestyle affirmation, so also is denial. This is not a momentary slip like Peter experienced when he denied the Lord three times on a certain night. Yes, Peter messed up royally on that occasion, but that was not the rule, the overall pattern of Peter's life. It was the exception. We still have the flesh, and we can mess up royally. Peter, however, did not characteristically, as a lifestyle pattern, habitually disown Jesus Christ. In fact, just the opposite. The overall pattern of Peter was that he openly confessed Christ. So much so, that tradition says that Peter, in the end, was crucified upside down at his request because he said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Moody Bible Commentary makes this uh, summary statement. The tense of the verb denies indicates that if a person's life could be defined or summarized as a whole by the words, he denied me, then that person can expect to be denied by, by Jesus. Jesus is not warning about an occasional lapse in one's witness that is otherwise found in a life punctuated by outspoken identification with him. Those who... Openly disown Christ as a lifestyle pattern can expect Christ to disown them on Judgment Day. That's what Matthew 7, 21 through 23, is all about, where he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice. It's a lifestyle pattern. Lawlessness. By the way, this hits right at the heart of easy believism, which I, I blast from pillar to post on a regular basis without apology. Because easy believism says, faith doesn't have to change your life. You can live any way you want to and still have faith without any serious ongoing confession of Christ. I don't see either Christ or the New Testament teaching this. I see that true saving faith results in a lifestyle pattern of confessing Christ. Not perfectly, but certainly. Certainly. It's a life thing where one's whole being and life is identified with Christ. That's what true regeneration is all about. That's what true repentance is all about. That's what being born again is all about. I mean, we're talking a life change. Those that have a lifestyle that in effect disowns Christ, I don't care what they say, if they have a lifestyle that disowns Christ, will in truth be disowned before Him, before the Father. Because in truth, they never really knew or belonged to Jesus. An example of denying or disowning Christ is Judas. That is precisely what he did. John MacArthur says this warning applies in context to a person who makes an outward profession of Christianity but turns away when hard testing comes. Hard times are testing times. And they're proving times. 1 John 2, 23, 25, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. There's two categories. Denying, acknowledging. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides, that is, continues in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that then applies, that He has promised us eternal life. If we disown Christ here, He will disown us before the Father. Expositor says we cannot reject Christ without being rejected ourselves. And when the going gets rough, phony professors abandon Christ, showing they were never really there to begin with. They were professors. But when the pressure comes before men, they cave. They were never true, uh, uh, true professors, true confessors. And apostasy is a real thing. And the hardness of persecution tends to sift out who is real from who is not. Yes, we may slip, but not we're not going to fall completely and finally away. In Hebrews chapter 10, 38, 39, now the just shall live by faith. And he's challenging, the, you know, he's got a concern about some in, among these Hebrew Christians who are, are feeling the pressure now and maybe wanting to go back to, okay, let's go back to our old Hebrew roots here. He says, no, the just will live by faith. But if anyone draws back, Okay, I'm leaving this stuff. I'm going back. My soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. 1 John two nineteen. they went out from us. Oh, they started here. They, yeah, they were on the rolls here, but now they're gone. Doesn't mean just going from one church to another. It means that they, they walked away from Christ. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly. Who's going to go to the lake of fire? Well, part of those that go are cowardly. I'm afraid to really take a stand for Christ. Oh my goodness, if I really take a stand before men, what's going to happen to me? The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Christ is teaching that those who genuinely belong to him can expect to be abused and mistreated just like their Lord was, with varying degrees of intensity. Let me ask you, does the way of the cross have any application for his followers today? Well, of course it does. However, such a confession comes with the promise that true believers will likewise one day be confessed or acknowledged by Christ before the Father. But in contrast is the warning that whoever disowns Christ will also likewise on judgment day be disowned by him. True story from history. Pliny, who lived from AD 61 to 113, was governor of the Roman province Bithynia in the days of the early church. And in those days, he wrote a letter to the Roman emperor seeking to explain why he had been unsuccessful in stamping out the sect called Christians. I mean, this was his job, to get rid of the sect called Christians. Well, he had tried arrest, fines, imprisonment, beatings, torture, various forms of execution in order to get them to renounce Christ. And to burn, just a little pinch, to burn a little incense to Caesar as an act of worship. But to no avail. In trying to excuse himself before the emperor, he wrote, he wrote this. None of these acts, all these acts of persecution, none of these acts are effective against those who are really Christians. They cannot be compelled to do them. That is, worship Caesar. What a powerful testimony. Not only by these early Christians, but even by this pagan ruler. None of those who were really Christian could be compelled to worship Satan, uh, to worship Christ. Uh, Caesar, rather. Good grief. (laughs) None of those who were really Christian could be compelled to worship Caesar. So said Pliny. Uh, For them, it was all about Jesus. Persecution is used by God to reveal and to refine. It was Jesus. It's not me. I'm just the messenger. And and a very (laughs) inadequate one at that in some respects. But it was Jesus who said, Therefore, in light of all this emphasis on persecution, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. In light of that whole context, it's Jesus who says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, that is, disowns me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Note the double emphasis here on before men. Well, how about you? Are you a true confessor? Or are you really disowning Christ? What happens before men? in the context of a world of rejection out here, in the midst of the wolves. They're not our friends, you know, and yet we love them and we love them evangelistically and we're trying to win them. What do your lips say and what does your life say? True confession involves not merely the lips, but also the life. That's the stuff of a true confession. Well, may faith in Christ be the true measure of our lives and not the fear of man. This is the stuff of a true confession that Christ will one day honor before the Father. Be among the true confessors of Christ before men. Let's stand and have our closing song.